Welcome back to the third episode of Staying Alive, a podcast series on contemporary poetry in crisis. I'm Adriana Jacobs. This episode features the work of the Israeli poet and novelist Shimon Adaf. Shimon grew up in the southern Israeli town of Sderot, which lies in close proximity to the Gazan border. He began writing and publishing poetry at a young age, and his first collections of poetry, The Monologue of Icarus and What I Thought Was Shadow is the Real Body, were published in 1997 and 2002 to wide acclaim. In 2004, Shimon published his first novel, and for the next several years, he continued to publish short stories and novels, many of them showcasing his ability to work within various genres, notably science fiction and fantasy. It appeared that he had made a decisive shift to prose, but then in 2008, a catastrophic personal event, the sudden death of his beloved older sister, brought him back to poetry. In this episode, which we recorded in Tel Aviv, Shimon revisits the circumstances that shaped the composition of Aviva No, his third collection of poetry, published in 2009. The title refers to his sister, whose name was Aviva, but Aviva also refers to springtime in Hebrew, which carries with it associations to renewal and rebirth, which the no of the title appears to negate. But no can also be understood as a declaration of refusal, a rejection of Aviva's death. Indeed, while the poems of Aviva no acknowledge the finality of death, they simultaneously explore the possibility of an afterlife in poetry. With references to Patti Smith, King Lear, and the rituals of Jewish mourning, Shimon shares with us how he found, through poetry, a language for his grief. I want us to talk about Aviva Lo, your third collection, which was published in 2009. It's a very personal collection, something that's clear to the reader from the onset. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how this collection came together. Well, in 2008, my older sister died suddenly. She wasn't sick or anything. She got up one morning and went doing her stuff, and she was supposed to go to work, and something happened, and she just dropped dead. And I, I was in Tel Aviv in my apartment, and I got an, just a telephone call, really. It wasn't, my phone was closed, so it was, and first I opened it, and I saw an SMS from my brother saying that I have to call back. And then when I called back, they, he told me that she uh, she died. Uh, and for me, this was kind of, um, well, it was the, the initial shock, you know, that you don't really know. It's uh, It seems at first like kind of a dream, like some kind of residue of a dream that you've been dreaming and you, you're going to wake up any, any minute and then you don't wake up. Uh, and, and reality started to part from this, this moment. And I felt that while I was, all my language stayed in the world in which my sister lived. Because for me, uh, she wasn't all, all only a sister. She's the one who taught me how to read. And she gave me my first books. So part of my language was hers. And I didn't know in which language I have to speak right now. Once she is gone, then some, the construct of language, the way language works, also lost its uh, logic. It lost its uh, sense of actuality. There was no, no connection between words and, and reality because in the reality in which she, she, she is dead, there is no region for language. And I have kind of, I had to pick up my myself, like trying to 
piece out together language in which I can speak about the pain, about the, about the loss. And, and for me, the, 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 the place that I start at is poetry. I, I haven't been writing poetry at this time, at this, at this moment. I was mostly uh, doing stuff with fiction. It, it was like uh, 66 years or more after I uh, published a poetry book. And, I, uh, and I, I thought that I was done with poetry. And suddenly when I came back to, to poetry in search for language, again, I started as I start always as a reader. And I found out that no matter which poetry influenced me when I was younger or poetry that I felt gave weight to the sense of being in the world or even poetry that illustrated for me what will it be to lose someone, it's it just everything became kind of fog. And within poetry you have forms and you have rituals that help you deal with mourning and give shape this, to this shapeless experience. But I felt that everything that I was offered was vain, was, was, was empty, was hollow, and, they, and that I have to find out my rituals, my language. And the only way that I can do it is starting when there is no language. And I think that poetry always starts with no language at all. This idea that somehow you have to find your own way through this language is really striking. And I want to hear more about the rituals that you created for yourself to write about your sister and her death. So it's not that I diminish the work of all the achievement of others. They helped me. But I felt as I felt towards sacred text or religious text because I grew up in a religious house and I have a religious upbringing. And I, I'm really versed with the Jewish texts. And also, you have wonderful texts, you know, about, you know, most of, of Jewish culture is built on grief. Israel starts with tremendous loss. So even in this text and this ritual that were made to turn grief into and mourning into mechanism of memory, which is w- what we do usually when we want to face uh, loss. But for me... It was too public. I wasn't just losing a sister, I was losing an option of speaking. I didn't know how to speak. And nobody could have given me this this language back and I had to reclaim it. And I started by walking. I really like to walk. And my sister and I used to walk. And for me, it was like going through the roots, trying to find a map that will be kind of a conceptual map in which I would walk every day because I didn't do anything. I, I, didn't, I didn't go to work for like three months. In a way, it was an um, arbitrary route. And for me, this was the route in which I'm, that has to do with my pain. And, and this, is from, this became kind of a ritual. So there were many poems. They were written at the time, but not many of them got into the book. Some of them were too intimate, too uh, personal, too idiosyncratic. But that was my main ritual. I wanted to address a poem, a very interesting poem in this collection, which is written in Hebrew, but it's transliterated English. Um, And it creates this wonderful distortion, very moving distortions, both for me as a native English speaker, sounding it out and hearing English, but hearing it deformed in some way. And in this poem, you write, I think I should write in a language where I am deaf, 
to the pulse of words. And what's so fascinating for me is obviously this word death in English sounds like death. Yeah. But this idea of writing in a language where one is death to the pulse of words, is this connected as well to the, in some sense, the baggage of the Jewish and specifically Hebrew textual tradition of remembering and mourning? Many of the texts that I, I read weren't really connecting with me. I felt that they were leading me astray from my, my own grief. But when I was reading in English, it's not the language that is my native. The pulse of the word is gone from me, and I can just give myself to the meanings, you know, without hearing the sounds, without hearing the, the life within the words. And for me, the texts that really work, they are woven through this book. One of them is King Lear by Shakespeare. Because of the scene with Cordelia, and the way that the king is carrying his daughter and this drift that cannot be put into words anymore, that he had to be just this scream or this kind of uh, howl. And the other poems, I'm saying poem, but they're really songs or, like, of Patti Smith, which I started dreaming about my sister. And in several dreams, she wasn't my sister, she was Patti Smith. And I didn't understand why. And I went back to Horses and to other records by Patti Smith and I was looking for a voice that could represent my sister voice. I think that the first thing that goes when somebody dies, it's the voice. You cling to faces, you cling to smells. The voice is kind of, it's becoming very blurred. And, and I don't mean just the sound. I mean also the way that the voice is present. And, and just, it was Patty Smith. I don't know why. It's weird that they would think about my sister's Betty Smith because there's nothing really connects them. It's like two parts of my world. And I say, okay, I can listen to Betty Smith and I can read Shakespeare again and feel that I can linger within the work. But in this language, I cannot write because it's not my language. So this became the solution about writing a poem in a language that I cannot write about my true feelings. In a number of poems, you also make reference to the book's that your sister brought into your life and the books that you associate with her, Jane Austen, Sherlock Holmes, Jules Verne. There's a lot of raw material, the sort of intimate details of someone's life and, and one's connection to them. And you mentioned that there were poems that didn't make it into the collection because they were too intimate or you said idiosyncratic. How does this sort of raw material, how does one use it? I'm thinking just the practicality as a writer and where does it come into tension sometimes with aesthetic concerns? The idea that in the end one is maybe consciously working on a book that is going to be published and read by others. Can you go back and sort of remember how you negotiated that relationship? What sort of filtering strategies you employed? First, when I selected the poems, I really wanted the poems to be obscure in a way. Not not obscure, but that they will have like a, they will have like double existence, like the existence that I was feeling like I was... I was torn between two worlds, and I wanted the poems to convey this feeling that part of the poems are kind of immersed in another context that you cannot really, you can't fully understand. And this is the context of my, of my life, or even my connection with my sister. Like there was like the secrets meaning. As someone who can understand Hebrew, for them, 
some of the words may mean different things that they mean to me or my sister because it was a world that didn't exist anymore and it was really submerged under this kind of language itself. I really went through them as people we are fetishists and we start to treat not just object but also certain instances in life or certain occurrences they feel with memory and emotion for us and they don't feel for others. And I just selected the poems in which that there were triggers of memories. Like once I was in Paris and she went to London and I came to London to visit her. And we walk on the street and there was a jewelry store and she really, really liked one of the necklaces. And she just stopped and looked. And I don't really like window shopping or shopping at all. And it was, uh, I, I got very frustrated with her and she was hypnotized. And since then, and after she died, the meaning of gold changed for me. For me now, gold carries always the, my, my sister fascination with gold. And I wanted like this feeling to, to go through this book. And, and, and I, was, I was, when I selected, I said, okay, this is a poem that is, it's, it's obscure in a way, but it has this feeling of being fascinated with gold. So I wanted to be like this. So, so you don't get many information about my sister, you know, like uh, factual information, but you get, I think, all the uh, emotional information that I have about her. A word that comes up frequently in the collection, especially towards the middle, is geula, redemption. In Judaism, as you mentioned, redemption is very much connected to uh, memory and destruction, uh, the redemption of exile, redemption of the destroyed Jewish temple. But in these poems, you draw from these associations, you invoke them, but redemption here is also connected, as it is in, in Jewish tradition, the idea of repair, revival. What is the relation between poetry and redemption? Were these poems seeking a redemption of sorts? Well, I think first, as, as Jewish history goes, it starts with really the exile. It could be, and, and the exile is very dense. It's the exile from paradise, uh, and, the, and it's the, the exile from the land of Israel. Everything is compact into the same kind of metaphysical event in which that you are being drawn away from the uh, promised, promised place. And, and, and this is when time breaks, and, and we, we, we go into history. Like, Jews never wanted to live within history, just live. And, and, and then redemption is the end of history, and coming back to this divine time in which you are one with God, or you're in your promised place again, and you repair, like things are being repaired and, and reinstated. And for me, the redemption is when you lose history, then you lose everything that was important to you. And my question was, okay, if we are repaired, will we be cleansed of our memory as well, of our experience? And do I really want to lose this experience and these memories? Because when you think about many of the laws are based on the work that the priest in the temple and it's like the work of the priest in the temple was translated into everyday life. How do you live every moment of your life? And once the temple is rebuilt and there is a redemption and you redeem, then you redeem also from your own life. And so for me, it's kind of a conf confusing concept. What are you redeemed of? And if you're redeemed of yourself, then are you really redeemed? 
because it, it won't be you anymore. And it also bothers me that what kind of life do you live when you have this promise that you work towards redemption and one, one day you will be redeemed? What would be a life without the promise of redemption? Would there be better or worse? Isn't like the promise of redemption what keeps you mourning all the time? The an inability to overcome your loss? So I'm, I'm trying to uh, put redemption as kind of problem, you know, admit that we have this longing for redemption, but I'm not sure that I'm willing to be redeemed. Could we read one of your poems? So this is um, poem number 26. And um, if you can read it in Hebrew, uh, and then I will read it in an English translation by Yael Segalovitz. בת ארבעים ושלוש, את האישה שתהיי כל שאר חייך. המצח עוד חלק, עינייך שקועות נכון בערובות. מתוך הקשתיות ניבט שביב מטאור, ההוא המנגש בוקה, חותך את החלל, מבקיע קרום גבי של האטמוספירה. חומצות המינו נחפזות להתרכב, אצות אל הבטחת כוחן, יונקים כבדים פוסעים החוצה מן הים, נותנים מבט מורעב בענקי הזמן. עצים מצומררים מן הרגשה, כדור בוער סחרחר מעליהם וכבר קרונות מסיבובו, חמת הרצח, מוסיקה, צליפה של חסד. אידיאולוגיות מועכות בגלגלי מחשבתן, מרוץ נמהר שתכליתו הואט בלב אב מרותח. שבר, שרב, שובר את האוויר כמו נס, כמו עצמות, כמו אופנה. שלוש וארבעים שנה עדנת רשתות האור חורצת על גופך. את מסתכלת ברגלייך בתמיהה. And now we'll hear an English translation by Yael Segalovitz. Forty-three years old, you are the woman you will always be. The forehead still unwrinkled, your eyes well cradled in their orbits. From the iris looms a meteoric spark, ramming against the void, slicing up the space, breaking through a crystalline crust of atmosphere. Amino acids rush to fuse, hasten to secure their strength. Heavy mammals step out of the sea, send a famished stare at the titans of all times. Trees quivering with the thrill, a blazing ball whirling above them, radiating from its spin the lethal ire, music, a lash of mercy. Ideologies pounding as their wheels of thought go round. A breathless race whose purpose is just you in the fatherly heart of broiling Av. Heavy heat shatters in air like splendor, like bones, like fashion. Three and forty years, the light web's bliss cuts your body. You look with wonder at your feet, more memory than flesh. One of the things that's so striking about this poem is it begins with this declaration that Aviva will always be 43. And one of the really fascinating aspects or tensions in this collection is this acknowledgement that there's this finality to death, while at the same time, poetry offers the possibility of an open-endedness. It exists in a different time. There's also this wonderful mixing of imagery, this almost primordial prehistoric imagery of the mammals exiting the ocean, but then references to the body as a galaxy of sorts. 
I think poetry is kind of an apex point of language, very concerned with time. It cannot exist without time, but it always transcends times or try to transcend times. It's very hard when you speak to be within time because you put words in certain way and you force them to take time, you know, to be temporal or, or give them tenses. Once you have the, the, the future tense in language, then you can build a future. Once you have the subjunctive modus in, in language, what the Latin call uh, conjunctivus, then you are able to make speculations. And so there is also a temptation within poetry to try and annihilate or to erase things that happen to you that you cannot deal with. And I was struggling with it when I wrote the poem because I thought about poems that would speculate about a future in which my sister still lives and what will be the future like this or even like the next moment in which I can speak with her. And I felt that I, in a way that I was always betraying what really happened in which she died. And I wanted to bring this to feeling together that you can encompass time like eras in, in one line in poetry. And on the same time, something happened that cannot be ignored. And time stopped for her. She was 43 and, and she won't be anymore anything but 43. And I was trying just to put this to, you know, this, this kind of uh, first impotence that, you know, language cannot save anything. You know, it cannot bring back the dead. And this feeling of uh, potency that it's on the, on the other way around, that poetry can survive us, can go on without us, and it can maintain the life of the people that we love. Your collection consists of 43 poems, and so there's clearly a connection there. And then you mentioned there are all these poems that don't make it in. How does one give a final shape to such a collection? How does one end such a collection? At some point, the book has to have its beginning and its end, and this also seems to work against a desire to also keep Aviva out of time. Uh, when I started collecting the poems, I had the shape of a book in my head. I don't really wanted to publish this book, and anyway, it's, uh, I'm still kind of uh, regretting the publication of the book in some way, and in others, I'm very glad that it was published. But I knew that it's going to have like 43 poems. That was my constraint. And I knew that I should put it into a narrative. And the narrative should follow stages of my going through the understanding of, of that itself. And I knew that it cannot end with my sister. That the closing point would be my mother. Because from all the voices that I heard in the Shiva, her voice was the strongest and the less verbal. And, and I wanted to go to the moment in which she exists before the creations. God created the world with his own words. So once he brought reality into being, he also brought language to fit this reality. If the first word were the words of God, what, what happened before he created the world? Why, was he screaming? Was he talking nonsense? Was the language of God before the world was created? Was he crying like my mother before he created anything? Was he full with joy? He couldn't express himself or herself. And I knew this would be like going to a moment before language can, can exist, can form. 
and I knew that the, 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 the poem that starts everything is it should be a declaration of my state, where I stand when I write these poems. And everything was falling into place once I have this narrative. But I think that in many of my work, the structure that is presented is only a suggested structure. You could read it differently. The way that it's order, it's not the only order in which you can read it. Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. I'm really grateful that you shared this with us. Thank you. This episode features a reading of poem number 26 from the collection Aviva Lo, published in 2009 by Devere Press. The English translation by Yael Segalovitz will appear in the collection Aviva No, which is forthcoming with Alice James Press. In the next episode, we head to New Jersey to talk zombies with poet Laura Sims. Staying Alive is an original podcast series created and presented by me, Adriana Jacobs, with editing by Daniel Bieber and Danny Cox, and music by The Zombie Dandies. Many thanks to Iran Hadas for generously providing recording space and equipment. Support for this podcast comes from the John Fell Fund. For more information about this episode, including materials that didn't make it into the final cut, visit the podcast website, stayingalive.show. Mm-hmm.